Welcome to the St. Mark's Lutheran Church by the Narrows podcast channel. This podcast is part of our Bible study series, The Waters of Shiloh, which takes us through the first 12 chapters of Isaiah and is led by Pastor Mark Gravrock. And now, here's Pastor Mark with an opening song. Waters of Shiloh, gentle flowing true. Waters of Shiloh, always enough for you. Child, will you trust me when the storms draw near? Waters of Shiloh, flowing fresh and clear. Good morning. This is the second of five sessions called Waters of Shiloh, a study of the first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah. This is number two. The title of it is Putrid Grapes. And we're covering basically chapters three through the first seven verses of chapter five. We're also picking up a piece of chapter two that we never quite got to last week. This uh, second session, Putrid Grapes, that comes, that title comes from chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is a famous passage of Isaiah. Most of what we're going to be looking at today is kind of a downer, because Isaiah is really giving a frank analysis of what's going on in the kingdom of, of Judah in Jerusalem back in this time in the 700s BCE. Uh, which turn out to be a rather uncomfortable mirror of our own times in lots of ways. So you might not come out of today feeling all kinds of happy and touchy-feely about this. That's probably okay. That's part of what the prophets are about. I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5, first seven verses. This is called A Love Song for My Beloved. But the intro is actually Mark 12. You don't have to look up the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. But here's how it begins. Jesus has come into Jerusalem for the final week of his life, and immediately he's sparring with the the political and religious leaders of Jerusalem. And then he tells this story. It starts out, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants. You've got that on the left side of your screen. On the right side of your screen is the opening of Isaiah 5. When Jesus began to speak that story, that story of the vineyard, the way he talks about it, not only the image of the vineyard itself, but the way he describes it, sends off red flares and signals for his listeners. They know this stuff. They've been steeped in these words. Here's how Isaiah starts out. Let me sing you a love song for my beloved. Sounds like he's setting up his soapbox there in Hyde Park or something like that, getting his guitar out and ready to sing a song. He's catching them off guard already by doing that. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and he hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield grapes dot, dot, dot. Each of the parables, each of the stories goes awry right at that point. In Jesus' story, it's what these tenants in the vineyard are doing with the vineyard. In Isaiah's version of it, which is seven centuries before Jesus, and Jesus is drawing on it, 
in Isaiah's version is what happens to the grapes. Either way, the image of a vineyard is a common trope, a common image for God's people, God's planting, this people that God has planted in the soil to produce something specific for the world. It, the image of fruit is the image of purpose, the image of what we're all about and what we're for, but something's gone awry. Isaiah goes on. Oh, the line I skipped there the, after the dot, dot, dot. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That's what the new RSV says, and that's how most translations put it. The Hebrew word that's used there actually means stinking grapes. And so I'm translating it as putrid grapes. Instead of fruit that's luscious and good to eat and nutritious, there's something rotten about it. It looks like the right thing, but it ain't. Here's how Isaiah continues. Now inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me, for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And when I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield putrid grapes? You can hear now God's disappointment, God's intention for this community and what's gone wrong. Now I'll tell you what I'll do with my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It will be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it'll be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. I'll command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And then, in case nobody was getting the message, Isaiah now makes it crystal clear. Isaiah 5, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are God's pleasant planting. God expected justice, but saw bloodshed. God expected righteousness, but heard an outcry. There you have the grapes God wanted and the grapes God got instead. I put up here on the screen uh, a couple of, a set, two sets of puns. We think punning is funny in, in English and in our culture. The prophets use punning for really serious matters. Sometimes it's funny as well. But here are the words. Justice in Hebrew is mishpat. Bloodshed is mispach. Righteousness is tzedakah, outcry is tzedakah. God expected mishpat and got mispach. God expected tzedakah and got tzedakah. Bloodshed and outcry. That starts us off today, asking the question, what's gone wrong with God's vineyard? What's happened to God's people, God's planting, God's intent for this model community in the world. What the grapes that God has gotten are injustice toward the vulnerable and the marginal, a misplaced trust, false gods, and a pretty strong streak of greed and power lust. And if we ask why in the world do people turn to greed and power lust, all we have to do is look at ourselves. When we get greedy or when we really want to control life, what's behind it is fear. That's what's gone wrong. Here on this screen, I've made, it, made this into a little triangle because I think those three really do fit together as one unit. They're all hooked together. At the top of the, of the triangle, you'll see false gods. Some of the prophets will talk specifically about the other gods. But when they're talking about the other gods, it's not just that God wants to make sure you've got the right name. The gods that we have 
shape us. Each kind of God we have shapes us in a, and misshapes us in a particular way. So when we're talking false gods, we're talking misplaced trusts, values that warp our lives. That's at the top of this pyramid. On the left side, you'll see hunger for power and wealth. Uh, that's connected with our misplaced trust. And the other side of the bottom of the pyramid, abuse of the vulnerable. We abuse the vulnerable because we want to control the power and wealth. And we want to control the power and the wealth because we've, our trust is in the wrong place. We've lost our way. Those are all hooked together. That's what's gone wrong with God's vineyard. That's what Isaiah is exploring in these opening chapters. Here on this next screen, what's wrong with us today? It's the same triangle. Misplaced trust and fears at the top. Hunger for comfort and control down on the left, and abuse of the other down there on the right. And I've added in a couple of, um, couple of phrases there in, uh, with yellow, yellow surrounding them. Just thinking of a couple of things going on right now. The Israel-Hamas war. When with all of the brutality and bloodshed, the mass of people on both sides don't want any of this. What's behind it? And on the other side, our climate justice issues, our climate that's gone awry and the trouble that we have facing it seriously, and the question of who bears the brunt when climate goes bad. It's not the comfortable. What's behind all of the, both those sets of issues? It's the same triangle, the same pyramid. At this point, I invite you to turn back to chapter 2 of Isaiah. We never quite got this far last week. Um, but it, and it's an important passage I don't want to skip. Because one of the things that Isaiah adds to the prophetic language, the prophetic picture that most of the other prophets don't pick up on so clearly is what he calls pride. My question is, what's wrong with pride? This is Isaiah 2, verses 6 through 22. It's important to get a handle on that question, what's wrong with pride? Because there's good pride, there's healthy pride, and there's unhealthy pride. God, I don't believe God is wanting or Isaiah is wanting to stomp us down so that we all feel like worms in God's presence. I don't think that's the point. As we nurture our children and our grandchildren, we want them to develop a healthy pride, a healthy sense of who they are so they can stand in the world and serve others uh, joyfully and freely. There's a good kind of pride. And then there's another kind, and that's the kind that Isaiah is addressing. This, uh, this passage in Isaiah 2, verses 6 through 22, has, a, has a, a literary structure to it that I enjoy whenever I see this structure showing up in Scripture. It starts out with, um, in chapters, chapter 2, verse 6, You have forsaken the ways of your people, O house of Jacob. And then he goes on to talk about what your land has become full of. There's a whole list of what the land is filled with or full of. They're full of diviners from the east, soothsayers like the Philistines. They clasp hands with foreigners in terms of their practices. You've pulled in these, um, these occult practices from other nations as an attempt to control your lives and secure your future. Verse 7, their land is filled with silver and gold and there's no end of their treasure the developing of wealth. Second half of seven, their land is filled with horses and there's no end to their chariots. Here a little footnote. 
The only time horses are used in ancient Near Eastern society is not for nice horseback riding out in the fields, it's for war. The horse is an animal of war. They pull the chariots. And so when you read horses in the prophets, read tanks and missiles. Your land is filled with military hardware. And then verse 8, your la the land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. Here's a cluster of our false trusts. Our attempts to control our lives, our wealth, our military might, and the other values that are the work of our own hands, but we've come to trust them. That's where Isaiah begins this. The next thing I notice as I read is that there are, there are elements that appear more than once in this section of chapter 2. And so if you look at verse 10, enter into the rock. If you look, look at verse 19, enter the caves of the rocks. You've got two times when Isaiah says, God's coming, God's going to deal with this. You better go hide yourself in a cave someplace and look out for yourself. So on the screen, you'll see the left side there. The first time is shorter. Enter into the rock and hide from, in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of God's majesty. On the right, it's longer. Enter the caves of the rock and the holes of the ground from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when God rises to terrify the earth. On that day, people will throw away their idols to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the crags from the terror of the Lord, from the glory of God's majesty when God rises to terrify the earth. It's not a very pretty picture. God's coming and God's going to womp you. We'll have to deal later with exactly how this stuff plays out and how God comes and womps or doesn't womp or whatever actually happens. But the point is, be afraid. Time to go hide yourself. Shows up twice. So on the next slide here, I've, I've laid out hide in the rocks twice. We're going to build the pattern as we go. Well, the next thing that shows up right after the first hide in the rocks and right before the second hide in the rocks is something about the haughtiness of people. Verse 11, the haughty eyes of people will be brought low and the pride of everyone will be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Verse 17, the haughtiness of people will be humbled and the pride of everyone brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Have you heard that before? The idols shall surely pass away. Well, here you get a second piece of the pattern. On this screen, you can see height in the rocks and then indented haughtiness brought low. A little bit further down, haughtiness brought low and then height in the rocks again. This isn't accidental. This is a literary structure that the people could hear as, the, as Isaiah is proclaiming it, and they could see it as it's written. They could watch the pattern. When you've got this sort of pattern developing in Hebrew poetry, the intention of this, this kind of format is to draw your attention to the very middle of the thing. It's drawing you to a center. So here on this next slide, you'll see it's called, in, scholars call this a chiasm named after the Greek letter chi, which is shaped like an X. And I put an X there on the side of the uh, side so that you can see if you move, it, move down the left side of that X to the middle point and then back out the left side of the X, it moves in and back out. And in literary terms, it's drawing your attention to the very middle. And the middle, God has a day when God's going to do something. This is verses 12 to 16. 
The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, all that is lifted up and high, against all the cedars of Lebanon and the oaks of Bashan. The cedars of Lebanon were the most beautiful and majestic trees of the ancient Near East. Against all the high mountains and lofty hills, against every high tower and fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, the beautiful craft, the most, the most uh, developed and excellent ship, shipping that went on in the Mediterranean was the ships of Tarshish. So what's the problem? God doesn't like anything big or anything high? Is God threatened? Is God afraid of human excellence? What's going on here? It kind of sounds like it. What's going on with all of these high, lifted up things? Does God want us to be tiny? Is God threatened by our, by our growing up? I don't think so. The point, the point in all of it is that these are, this is, this is a, a visualization of all of our standing on our own ground and thinking we're going to manage this on our own. Of, this is our misplaced trust. There's nothing wrong with lofty trees and high mountains. God made them after all. God kind of likes that stuff. It's when these things become emblems, these, these become emblems of when our trust is in the wrong place. When, we're, when, we're, when our values and our trust are skewed. The very end of the passage, verse 22, Isaiah says, Turn away from mortals who have only breath in their nostrils. Don't place your trust in human excellence or in human accumulation or human power. It's all, we're all dying anyway. It's not going to last. The question is, where will you place your trust? And with that last piece, our chiasm, our X shape, has grown. So that turn away from mortals matches the land full of gold and chariots and all the stuff that we began with. It's a long, beautifully shaped poem that's, that really focuses on our, our misplaced trust. So what's wrong with pride? Let me ask the question this way. How does human loftiness intersect with our accumulation of power and stuff? How does it intersect with the crushing of the marginal and the other? How does it intersect with the fueling of war? How does it intersect with our own fear and despair? That's, that's what Isaiah is analyzing. So here you have another triangle. What's wrong with pride? Our misplaced values and fears, our hunger for control and comfort, our abuse of the other. This whole triangle that we were drawing earlier, that's what Isaiah calls pride. That's what he means by this word. Later on in the book of Isaiah, this is in Isaiah 24 through 27. Scholars sometimes call this Isaiah's apocalypse. It's a wonderful set of chapters where there are these two cities, as I call it a tale of two cities, that run through these chapters. Um, and they're never named, well, the second city is named as Zion, but the first city is never named. It's almost like fill in the blank. It might have been, might have been Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Later on, it might be Babylon. Later on, it could be Rome. Later on, it could be 
you name the capital that you want to put in, in place. What Isaiah calls it is the city of chaos, or the fortified city, or the lofty city. This is the city of human arrogance, gone askew. And the other, the other city is the city of the lowly, the city of trust. So this is a theme that Isaiah is going to develop throughout this whole book. In chapter 3 then, so chapter 2 we get this picture of, of our misplaced trust, our pride. Chapter 5, the putrid grapes. In between, we're going to start seeing how that plays out in some specifics. So chapter 3, I call this, What a Difference Leaders Make. Um, the, the role of leadership is crucial. You know that now, as you look at our nation now, as you look at what's going on in the United States, as you look at what's going on in Israel, as you look at what's going on with Hamas, it's the, it's the leadership that is misshaping. I mean, we're all involved, okay? We don't get off the hook. But the crucial role of important leadership in any human community and how that community is shaped. I've got a couple, a couple of slides here from the book of Micah. Micah is, is the small town prophet who is doing his work at the same time as Isaiah is doing his work in the capital city. They're parallel in lots of ways with, with some different perspectives because of their location. For Micah, uh, his, as he analyzes the situation, he lays everything at the feet of the, of the misleaders, the leaders. So chapters 2 and 3 of Micah, he, he indicts the powerful landowners, the false preachers, the false shepherds, false rulers and judges, false prophets, and ends with, therefore, because of all these bad leaders, Jerusalem will be plowed like a field. That's Micah. Jerusalem, uh, um, Isaiah's look at Jerusalem's misleaders starts in chapter, chapter 3. And we're not going to read this in great detail. But he starts out talking about God removing support and staff, all support of bread, all support of water. It sounds like God's taking away the food supply first. But then immediately it moves into warrior and soldier, judge and prophet, diviner and elder. The support and staff are the leadership. As you go through then the first half of Isaiah 3, Isaiah is depicting a people whose leaders are gone and who are scrambling to find new leaders. And they, they have, well, verse 4, I think, I will make boys their princes. There's a scary thought right there. Um, when you get to the end of the section, you get to the heart of the matter. Isaiah 3, 13 through 15. This is verse 14. The Lord enters into judgment with the prince, elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard, there's the vineyard language before he even brought it out. You've devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor. This bad leadership is tied in directly to and leads to abuse of the poor, abuse of the lowly, devouring of the vineyard. The second half of the chapter gets a little uncomfortable because now we're going to go uh, sexist and misogynist. It's a passage that might, we might just want to skip over. Um, it's not a passage I would ever preach on on a Sunday morning, I don't think. But it's, I think it's important for us to look at it 
here now as in our study together. I've entitled this half of the chapter, The Finery of the Women, Isaiah 3.16 to 4.1. Um, this is, I don't think there's any escaping that the images in the second half of chapter 3 are sexist. Uh, this comes from a, 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 a dominantly patriarchal culture where the women have no power to speak of at all. Uh, and the picture that we get of the women is, is from a patriarchal perspective. And it's not complimentary. It's not helpful. Um, I think it's important for us first to, to see and acknowledge the patriarchal sexism that's there in the Bible's pages. This Bible of ours, we believe, is God's word. And it's a human word at the same time, that it's the product of God's partnering with real human beings and real human communities and leading us forward from, from our, our dark places into new light. And so we'll, we'll catch places in the Bible that are in, in motion and in transition and are not ones that we would want to live in today. Some, as they read these passages, will even ask, can, they, can we use them at all? Are they redeemable? Um, my hope is that we can, we can take the, the sexism seriously and at the same time learn how to lay aside what's wrong in it in order to hear God's message in it. So here's how Isaiah 3, verses 16 and 17 go. Thus the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Well, there's an interesting picture. What's it conjuring up for you? Regardless of how sexist it is. I've watched plenty of movies that look like this. Have you? Um, this is, if you think of Pampered, pampered young women in a wealthy society who are looking to see how they can make the best of it. Um, it's a picture of, of, of young women who, are, who have been given everything and are trying to use it for their own advantage, whether, regardless of how you read that. Um, where it goes from there is, uh, in that day the Lord will take away, and we get next a catalog of ancient finery. Scholars, as they, as they looked at this, have marveled at what a complete picture this is of ancient women's finery and women's dress. In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands and the cressets, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes and the amulets, the signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, mantles, cloaks, and handbags, the garments of gauze, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Are you getting a picture? The question is, what's, for as sexist as this picture is, what is Isaiah doing with it? I think it's important that this comes straight after those verses that say, you have devoured the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, grinding the face of the poor? Here's a point where I really wish we had a chance to be in conversation together and share reactions to this and perspectives on it, and I would love to hear your reactions and perspectives. All I can do at this point is give you mine, and that's that 
these women who have no power in that society and who are in, in one sense victims of, the, of it as well are also participating in it. Um, there are ways when you don't have the power that you participate in the system anyway. That the finery and the, all, all of the, the, um, all the finery that the women are exhibiting here is directly connected with the oppression of the poor. What it does for me is to ask, okay, I have not consciously oppressed the poor myself. I've never done anything that I know that I intend is, is crushing people who are beneath me. But my lifestyle, my comforts, the things that I take for granted, and the way that I continue to live my life, how is it connected with the whole structure of our world? How does it participate? What this tells me is that I don't get off the hook even just because I'm not one of the power brokers. I'm involved in it. I think that's what Isaiah is doing here, even as he's using a very patriarchal image. Where it goes at the end of the chapter, then, is God saying, instead of the, all these things will be taken away. Instead of perfume, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness, etc. And all the men will, be, will have fallen by the sword. Their warriors will fall in battle. For chapter 4, verse 1, the day will come when seven women will take hold of one man in that day, saying, we'll eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Just let us be called by your name and take away our disgrace. Um, oh, for a woman in that society not to have a husband was a severe disgrace. That was part of the structure of the system. And when the men are all killed in battle, what option do you have less left? Seven women taking one man and saying, Give us your name. It's a picture of both the brokenness of our gendered life and what's, what's happening with this whole nation. That's been a happy note, I'm sure. Our final picture is a picture of redemption. On that day, Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 6. There's a pattern that runs throughout these chapters of Isaiah. And if you, if you scan through, you'll notice a back and forth between judgment and promise. Chapter 1, judgment. 2, 1 through 5, promise. We've just been through another section of judgment. Now promise again. It happens at least four times in these chapters. Um, I think God, needs to, God knows that we need to hear something, something to hang on to out there in front when things are looking so dark and so grim. Um, even in this promise, the misogyny continues. So in the middle, in this, in the middle of this chapter 4, verse, verse 4, once the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, there it is still, and you can hear that either as still degrading women or redeeming their plight, one or the other. That, we could talk about that one too. But having acknowledged that, Hear the rest of this passage. On that day, key phrase in the prophets, on the day when God acts, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord, that's a term that came to be used for the Messiah, the branch of David. Um, maybe it means that. The parallel line is the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. 
Whoever is left in Zion and remaining in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, once the Lord has cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. This catastrophe that's about to befall them is a, a cleansing. And the result is that everyone will be called holy and recorded for life. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over its places of assembly a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. Does that sound familiar to you? If, you've, if you're one who has who's studied the stories of the Old Testament and dwelt in them, you might recall during the time of the wilderness wanderings that as a, a helpful emblem for the people to know that God was with them, there was this pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That returns now. The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion, cloud by day, smoke and fire by night. That's a good thing. And then indeed over all the glory there will be a canopy. It will serve as a pavilion, a shade by day from heat, a refuge and shelter from storm and rain. You might have heard that before in, a, in an old hymn. O oh God, our help in ages past, a shelter from the stormy blast in our eternal home. This is where it comes from, right here. Though promise at the end of all this disaster that God, even though this, even though this crisis is coming and the people are going to have to go through it, God is not letting go. God is not leaving the people to their own devices finally. There is... There is redemption beyond the disaster. There is new life flowing out of the cross. So to finish up then, I, here on the screen again is my triangle one more time with the putrid grapes, our misplaced values and fears, our hunger for control and comfort, our abuse of the other, Isaiah labeling the whole thing as pride. And here's the contrast. What are healthy grapes? Radical trust at the top, mutuality and justice on the left side, justice for the vulnerable, especially on the right, and this one is called faith. That's where we're going in these chapters.